This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, April 21st. I'm Bob Schieffer, and this is Face the Nation. Breaking news overnight as coordinated bombing attacks in Sri Lanka leave hundreds dead. We'll have the latest, then we'll turn to the news at home. President Trump wasn't taking questions from reporters about the Mueller report's release as he headed to Mar-a-Lago for the holiday weekend with the First Lady. Sir, why did you think Robert Mueller's appointment would end your presidency, sir? But Mr. Trump did take the time to tweet out a silent video of celebration with his version of the report's conclusions. Unsurprisingly, Democrats say it is not over and that the next move is up to Congress. I have called on the House to initiate impeachment proceedings. We'll hear from the chairman of one of the House committees investigating the Trump administration, Maryland's Elijah Cummings. Plus, the Senate Judiciary Committee will hear from Attorney General William Barr soon. We'll talk with Utah Republican Mike Lee and Margaret Brennan talks with New Jersey's Cory Booker. Plus, a look at three new books about powerful women and an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Robert Cairo. Finally, I'll have some thoughts on the fire at Notre Dame. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Bob Schieffer. Margaret is off today. It is a grim Easter Sunday and third night of Passover. As we come on the air, there have been eight bombings overnight in and around three cities in Sri Lanka. At least 200 are reported dead, 450 more injured, and those numbers will likely go higher. Our CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports now from New Delhi, India. On what should have been the most joyful day in the Christian calendar, there was shock and grief. One bomb went off at St. Anthony's Shrine in the capital, Colombo. Another at St. Sebastian's Negombo. The blast was big enough to have destroyed the roof. Violence is nothing new here in a country that has suffered years of civil war. But an attack of this scale on Christians is unprecedented. And it appears that foreigners were targeted, too. At the Shangri-La Hotel, a five-star destination for foreign tourists, a bomb shattered the massive plate glass windows the whole length of the second floor, while bodies lay around the entrance. This complex and coordinated attack has stunned the nation. So far, no one has claimed responsibility. Elizabeth Palmer, CBS News, New Delhi. 
We turn now to the Mueller report and the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Elijah Cummings. He joins us from Baltimore. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for being with us. I want to uh, start with this. The report is out. The partisan divide seems wide or even wider than ever. What happens now? This document, the Mueller document, has now left us with a roadmap to go forward. Uh, I think he basically said to us uh, as a Congress, it's up to you to take this further with regard to obstruction and, uh, and other matters that might come up. Well, already, Mr. Chairman, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Maxine Waters, Julian Castro have said we should begin proceedings to impeach the president. Are you there yet? I'm not I'm not there yet, but um, I, I, I can foresee that possibly coming. Um, but again, um, the fact is, is that I think we have to do be very careful here. Um, the American people, uh, a lot of them, clearly um, still don't believe that uh, President Trump is doing things to destroy our democracy and has done a lot of things very poorly. Um, And so I think that we need to make sure the Congress has all the information, and then we need to be able to have the public know that information uh, so that they can see that they have a president that basically... Uh, has been about the business, I think, of doing great harm, not only to our country, but to our democracy. But there is also this reality. Uh, At this point, there simply are not enough votes in the Senate uh, to remove the president, even if the House does move uh, to impeach him. So is it smart to start impeachment proceedings under those circumstances? We all know what happened in the uh, Clinton impeachment. Yeah, but I think this is a little different uh, than uh, Clinton's situation. Uh, we have a, a president who here who basically was instructing government employees and non-government employees uh, to, to commit crimes, to tell lies, and to be deceitful. Uh, he himself uh, was on television uh, constantly railing against uh, our, uh, the prosecutor, and railing against just about anybody who had to do anything to do with this investigation. He went against the FBI and CIA, whoever it was that uh, he felt could, uh, what could, could play a role in him being uh, indicted. It's the numbers that we're talking about here. This is a political act, and if you do vote to impeach him and then the Senate uh, votes not to remove him, won't that look like a victory for him? It may very well. But do you know that sometime, Bob, I got to tell you, there comes a point in life where we all have to make decisions based upon uh, the fact that it is our watch. And, you know, history, I think, even if we did not win, possibly, uh, if there were not impeachment, uh, I think history would smile upon us for standing up for the Constitution. You know, I hear a lot of people say that they're tired of hearing about the Mueller report. Well, we don't have time to get tired because the Russians aren't getting tired. They are attacking our electoral system every single day, if not every hour. And so we, we've got to we're going, we're going to have to stand up. And the, the other thing, Bob, is that now that we, are, we know all the information that we, we, we know, we can't just allow this to go on and on. 
if the president, if we do nothing here, what is going to happen is that the president is going to be emboldened. He's going to be emboldened because he said, well, I got away with that. And then the people who, his aiders and abettors, that is, the, that the Republicans uh, in the Congress, they'll say, oh, he is pretty strong, and they'll continue to go along uh, with him. We cannot afford that. Our democracy cannot afford that. What intrigued you most about this report? What do you think uh, needs to be investigated now? Oh, my God. I, I think we need, uh, we need to look at the finances uh, of this uh, president. I think we need to look at what he knew what, uh, we, uh, with regard to uh, the firing and of various people. Uh, we need to, to know what, uh, why Mr. Barr uh, gave us a, a one-sided summary, uh, which has almost no resemblance to what's actually in the report. And we also need to know something else, Bob. We know we need to know from um, the Mr. Mueller exactly what his intentions were. Did he intend for us as a Congress to look at this and take some type of action, or or did or did he did he feel as if there was truly no uh, collusion or conspiracy? We need to hear that, and then and then we also need to hear from people. Uh, uh, like the counsel for the president and see what the, uh, Mr. McGahn, who uh, was very clearly disobeying the president in many instances, and actually by disobeying him, he came to his rescue. Talk to me about the way the this this report was released. First, we get a letter that suggests the president uh, hasn't been found guilty uh, of, of anything. And then uh, they choose to release it on Easter weekend, uh, when most people are thinking about things other than politics. Uh, was this some kind of a public relations plan uh, to to soften the blow of this thing, or did it just happen this way? No, I don't think it just happened this way. It's too many things that happened. Um, and then don't forget, uh, he talked about uh, the Trump uh, campaign being spied upon, uh, and there was so much here. Um, but clearly, uh, this the Mr. Barr is acting as the defense counsel for the president of the United States. When really, Bob, he's supposed to be our lawyer, the people's lawyer. And I and I am appealing to Mr. Barr to please do the job that you're supposed to do. There's supposed to be some kind of independence, but he bent over backwards to give this president the benefit of the doubt. He even expressed empathy uh, with the fact that the president, when he came in, was under pressure. Well, all presidents are under pressure. Um, and if they're not, uh, don't expect to be under pressure, they shouldn't do the job. What about uh, McGahn? Are we, uh, how do you feel about what he did? Uh, you know, I, I feel pretty good about McGahn. Um, because I, McGahn stood up to this president, and there there are a lot of McGahns out there, uh, and we need more of them to stand up. And and Bob, I, I'm telling you, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight with everything I've got because I, as I told the president not long ago, uh, uh, when I met with him, I said, Mr. President, the greatest thing that you and I can do is leave a democracy intact for generations yet unborn. What do you have to say to you about that? He just smiled and put his head down, and uh, that was it. Mr. Chairman, uh, and this will be my final question, uh, the investigation itself, 
Did special counsel Mueller do a good job? I think I, I think he did do a good job, but I will know better once uh, we see the report, uh, the unredacted report, report come out. I want to say to everybody, all of our whistleblowers, we need your help because the the president uh, and his uh, lawyers are blocking all every bit of information that we need to do our investigation. He has been trying to uh, block us. I beg you, whistleblowers, come out, help us, call us. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And we'll be back in one minute with Senator Mike Lee. So don't go away. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Well, for a different view, I assume it's going to be a different view, we're going to turn now to Senator Mike Lee, who is not only the senior senator from Utah, but also a constitutional scholar. He's the author of a new book, Our Lost Declaration, America's Fight Against Tyranny from King George to the Deep State. Senator, thank you. We are going to ask you about that book, but we obviously have to start uh, with the Mueller report. You just uh, heard uh, Chairman Cummings uh, But here's the question. You're on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Democrats seem ready to, some of them at least, ready to impeach right now. Do you believe, as Chairman Cummings and I think uh, the chairman of your committee, uh, Jerry Nadler, said this morning, that what Mr. Mueller did was leave you a roadmap, leave Congress a roadmap for further investigation? I suspect that's what the Democrats, particularly in the House of Representatives, are going to want to do. That, of course, is a political question, and I think, politically speaking, it would be a mistake for them to do it. It sounds like some of them are inclined to go down that road. But what we've got to remember, Bob, is that the number one takeaway from this report is that there was no collusion. We've got people who, for the last two years, have been using the Russians' attempt to undermine the legitimacy of our electoral process as an effort within this country to undermine this president and the process by which he was elected. But there was no collusion. It isn't there. Not a scintilla of evidence supports that. So it's time to move on. Your colleague, the junior senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, 
uh, put out a pretty stunning statement uh, yesterday. I just want to read this to you. This is Mitt Romney speaking. I am sickened at the extent and pervasiveness of dishonesty by individuals in the highest office in the land, including the president. I am appalled that federal, fellow citizens working in a campaign for president welcomed help from Russia, including information that had been illegally obtained, that none of them acted to inform American law enforcement, and that the campaign chairman was actively promoting Russian interests in the Ukraine, close quote. Your reaction? Well, first of all, I think Senator Romney has some credibility with regard to Russia. Remember, it was Senator Romney as a presidential candidate in 2012 who pointed out that we ought to be very concerned about Russia. Uh, sadly, his warnings went unheeded and under President Obama's leadership over the next four years. Uh, Russia's activities, its, its nefarious efforts to undermine our system, continued. And it, perhaps that's some of what's motivating Senator Romney to speak out about this. Well, do you agree with him? Uh, look, there's nothing in this report that changes my view of this president. I don't think most Americans, I don't think most senators, most members of Congress, I don't think most Americans will have their view of the president of the United States changed by this report. There's just nothing in there that should do that. Do you think uh, the special counsel, Mr. Mueller, was fair to the president? Well, I think the special counsel certainly was thorough. I I, I find pieces of the report a little bit odd. Uh, For example, when he talks about obstruction, I think it's odd to say I'm not going to make a recommendation, but I'm going to sound like I'm making a recommendation. There's not evidence that I can point to, but nonetheless, uh, I couldn't get there even if I did. It's kind of strange to spend two years on that and then speak with um, a sort of a tone that is reminiscent of Pinocchio in the movie Shrek 3. Uh, I'm not going to say that I'm not deciding. It's full of double negatives. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> I, uh, I want to talk about this book a little bit that you've written. Uh, I liked it. Uh, it's about uh, the great truths expressed in the Declaration of Independence. You argue that the government has gotten too big. I totally agree with you on that. I But I'm not as worried about the bigness of government uh, so much as I am about the incompetence of government. And I think some of that has come about simply because the best and brightest in America are turning away from public service and turning away running for office. And I guess I would ask you, how can we change that? Well, Bob, first of all, I'm not sure those two things are different. I'm not sure you and I are all that far apart on it. Uh, When government gets bigger, it necessarily becomes more incompetent. Human beings are flawed. They're fallible. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book is I wanted to point out that the more things change, the more they stay the same in some ways. Human nature hasn't changed in the two and a half centuries uh, since we became an independent nation. Uh, It is still the case that governments have to rely on fallible, mortal human beings. And just as King George III sent forth uh, swarms of officers, to, uh, uh, to harass us and to eat out our substance. We always have to be wary of large government agencies, the deep state, if you will, that has a tendency to become the self-perpetuating organism, one that can eat out our substance and harass the very people it's supposed to serve. 
Let me just read you what uh, you wrote in this book, which I found very interesting. Over the last eight decades, the people's elected representatives have made countless choices that have been steadily diminishing their own power, and with the power, with that, the power of the people they represent. In many respects, they have done so for a simple, understandable, but indefensible reason, delegating to others the difficult and contentious task of making law has a tendency to make re-election easier. That's exactly right. What we've seen is a gradual shift of power away from the American people, taking place in two steps. First, it's moved from the state and local level, where most people have more control over their local government than they do their national government. So it's moved from the people to Washington. Then within Washington, the people's elected lawmakers have voluntarily relinquished the lawmaking power. The, the one job they've got, they've handed over to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. It's bad for the people. It's bad for the uh, separation of powers. But it's, in some cases, good for the elected official because it makes it easier to get reelected when you're not making real laws, making real decisions. And, and creates problems. And this uh, leaves our representatives more worried about getting a primary opponent than legislation that they should be thinking about. They spend so much money, much time raising money now, they have no time to legislate. Senator, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Hope to see you again. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. You may have noticed, we hope you noticed, that last week Face the Nation was off the air due to the Masters Golf Tournament. But here at the broadcast, we did not stop working. After New Jersey Senator Cory Booker officially announced he was running for the Democratic nomination last Saturday, Margaret Brennan caught up with him in Newark. You think there's too much infighting in the Democratic Party? I think that we have, uh, and saw in the last election, uh, a lot of infighting that, that undermined our ability to win that election. I plan on being the nominee, but if I'm not, I'm going to make sure that we unify behind whoever is there. Because again, we can't fight each other and it's supposed to unifying each other, which is going to make us stronger. And so in this election, this is why I talk about things like grace, why I start talking about things about a more courageous empathy for one another, because there are definitely a politics in this country that believes that they will do better if they can divide us against each other. I'm going to run a race, not getting down into the gutter, uh, not trying to fight darkness with darkness. I'm calling to a more courageous empathy, a more a revival of civic grace for us to get back to what I think patriotism is. New Jersey is a pharmaceutical hub. Yes. You've signed on to Bernie Sanders' proposal of this Medicare for All bill. What happens to all those companies and people employed 
by those touching the insurance or drug industries. We share a value in America, and that's where we should always start, our common values, that nobody in this country should go bankrupt because they get sick or put aside life-saving drugs because they can't afford them. That's a value I think all Americans share. And so now the question is, how do we get there? I think the best way to get there is Medicare for all. But there are a lot of pathways to get to that end, and we've got to start now. So what happens, though, to the private insurance companies and to the private pharmaceutical companies under your Under my presidency? Well, hopefully in my first 100 days, we're going to put forward having a public option for Americans. And that means doing things like lowering Medicare eligibility down to 55, which, by the way, would actually lower costs for even the private insurance because you'd see more older people moving out. Number two, one of the biggest drivers to the healthcare costs in this country is the price of those pharmaceutical drugs. It's unacceptable. So we would use the power of Medicare to negotiate down costs. But this doesn't mean doing away with private health insurance. This doesn't mean government setting drug prices. Uh, listen, we, we live in a country where 180 million Americans have private insurance and are satisfied with their insurance. And we have unions who have negotiated for their insurance rates. Anybody that's going to come forward with a bold health care plan has to show what the pathway to getting there is. And the first way we can start to earn trust on that way is to create a viable public option. What is Cory Booker's immigration plan? Do you accept that there's a humanitarian crisis? I, I accept that there's a humanitarian crisis that is being caused by this president. There's a humanitarian crisis when you throw children into cages and, and separate families. That's a human rights violation. We can keep our country safe and strong and honor human rights as well. What do you do with the record number of family units that well, are crossing? You, first of all, Donald Trump's not even listening to his own people. You, you have what a, does Cory Booker do? Uh, well, I'll tell you what Cory Booker does. It's the exact opposite of what he's doing. You have a president that is not supporting those places where it's sourcing the immigration in the first place. We do lots of foreign aid from Africa to, to, to the, the Middle East. We should be making sure that those countries that are going through crises that are causing all this immigration, that we're doing more to intervene to support human rights and basic dignity in those countries. That's a lower-cost way to do, deal with it than to have the horrors of these families with small children trying to make thousands of miles journey to come to our borders. Then at our border, we need to make sure that we have an asylum system that actually works as Republicans and Democrats design that asylum system to work. What is your view on how the Attorney General has described what he has said was spying on the Trump campaign. For the Attorney General of the United States of America to make such a claim, back it up with no evidence whatsoever, delegitimized his position as the, an independent, he's not the President's Attorney General, he's the Attorney General for the United States of America, the highest law enforcement officer in the land. I think what he did uh, was in, in unfortunate and eroded even more of the trust the American people uh, should have in their Attorney General. Margaret's full interview with Senator Booker is available on facethenation.com, and we'll be back. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. 
And welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Bob Schieffer. Margaret is off today. We have just come through Women's History Month, and here is some news. Historians are not only taking more notice of women of consequence, but more and more people are reading about them. Example one, Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. It is on its way to being the biggest selling memoir of all time. Today, we're going to focus on three more very different women of consequence who are the subjects of our new books by our panel. Lynn Olson is the author of Madame Foucault's Secret War. Susan Page's new book is The Matriarch, Barbara Bush in the Making of an American Dynasty. And Evan Thomas is with us to discuss his latest First, Sandra Day O'Connor. Well, welcome to all of you. Thank you. Uh, Evan, I want to start with you because in a rave review in the New York Times, Jeffrey Tubin, the uh, uh, legal analyst, said that she was perhaps the deciding vote in so many crucial ca- uh, cases, abortion, affirmative action, and the vote that gave the presidency to George W. Bush, for example, that she was the most consequential woman in American history. Uh, yes, in terms of her impact. I mean, obviously, there have been a lot of great women in American history, so maybe that's a beat too far. <laughs> but, but she had a big impact. I mean, if you preserve abortion rights and affirmative action for 25 years and you're the first woman on the Supreme Court in history, that's a lot of power. Could she have been confirmed today? No. Uh, I don't think she would have been chosen today. She had no particular track record. I don't think that a modern Republican president, this one or anyone else, would name her because now they want a track record. They want to know how you're going to vote. And with her, it was a guess. As you know, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Barbara Bush were friends, Mm -hmm. but they were uh, quite different. As the uh, wife of one president and the mother... Uh, of another, and also the mother of a governor, how influential will she be remembered as? She was influential more behind the scenes than in public, but on issues like uh, like addressing the AIDS crisis, she played a big role behind the scenes in her in her husband's administration. And when it came to the Iraq war, she was a voice that, who spoke up against the Iraq war and the direction it was taking with her son until he finally told her to stop. Marie Madeleine Fercade, she was beautiful, she was brilliant, and she was a woman, and yet she led the largest intelligence service in occupied France. That's right. Uh, How did she do that? Uh, It's particularly interesting because back then, France, well, in some degree still is, was an extremely patriarchal conservative society, and the idea of a woman doing anything like that was... uh, just beyond the pale. How did the men react to her? I think part of it was she was as courageous as any man, and she was willing to be in the field with her agents. She was willing to face, and she did face, uh, the same dangers that they did every day. She was captured twice by the Gestapo and escaped. Um, So I think they got beyond her gender, and they saw her for what she was, which was this astonishing leader. You know what I found interesting in all three of these books? These were not books really about icons, but about human beings. Right. Uh, there's some good and some bad in, in all three of these characters. And also what I found interesting, all of these books had love stories. You got a little scoop on that. Yes, yeah. uh, it turns out that uh, Bill Rehnquist, the Chief Justice of the United States, when back in his law school days, actually proposed 
marriage to uh, then Sandra Day was her name. Both Sandra O'Connor and Bill Rehnquist kept that a secret for the rest of their lives. Uh, they didn't tell. They didn't even tell their families. Uh, my wife Osi and I found that in a box of correspondence. It wasn't in her regular papers. It was in her chambers in, a, in the basement. I don't think the family knew it was in the box. And there's this love letter. The 14 love letters actually. And one says, "Sandy, will you marry me?" Uh, now. The answer was no. Uh, she married John. She married the right guy. And, and Bill Rehnquist married the love of his life. So it all worked out in the end. And Susan, uh, of course, we all know about the love story between Barbara and, and George Bush. But you found a, out a lot about that. Well, you know, we know that it was essentially love at first sight at a high school dance over Christmas in 1941. Long marriage, 73 years, ups and downs during the marriage. A very fierce partnership at the end. And at the at the very end, uh, when I was interviewing Barbara Bush, she she expressed no fear about dying, but she worried about dying before he did. Mm-hmm. And, at, and two days before she died, they had a, an incredible exchange where she said, I'm not going to worry about you, George. And he said, I'm not going to worry about you, Barr. He gave her permission to die. She gave mm-hmm. him permission to live. And it was kind of the final statement of the love affair that started at that high school dance. And then, of course, <laughs> Madame Forcade, this was quite an unusual love story. It, this was a, an unusual love story. And again, like Evan, I didn't find out about it until last year when I was in Paris. Uh, Marie Madeleine Forcade wrote a memoir, uh, and she talked very lovingly about her number two, uh, her deputy in this uh, network, who was a dashing Air Force pilot. When I was reading the memoir, I thought, there's more to it than, than what she's writing about. And as it turns out, she, in fact, did have an affair with this guy. She fell madly in love with him, he with her. They were both very passionate, uh, charismatic people. And um, she got pregnant in the middle of the war. She got pregnant in November 1942. Um, and she was on the run from the Gestapo while she was pregnant, you know, going from place to place to place. Finally had the baby in June 1943 in Lyon. Um, her, the love of her life uh, was captured about uh, three months later by the Gestapo and was executed toward the end of the war. All three of these women made the most of being underestimated <laughs> by the men they were dealing with. Yes, she definitely did. Again, you know, the idea of a woman doing what she did was just extraordinary. And, and she benefited, and other women in the resistance, women played a huge role in the French resistance. Uh, they were absolutely necessary. But Germans come from the same kind of society that the French do, you know, very conservative, very traditional, very paternalistic. And, of course, women don't do that kind of thing. You know, they're, they're either wives or mothers, and so you don't expect them to be uh, out there, you know, spying. Or, um, and so they got away with a lot initially. And, and you know, Evan, uh, one of the things that struck me in your book is how much Sandra Day O'Connor learned from her mother and how her mother managed her father especially when he'd been drinking too much, and how she used that when right. she was on the court. Right. Uh, Sandra O'Connor was, I mean, her, her dad taught her about self-reliance and was loving and great, but her dad could be a little rough on her mom at night. And she watched the way her mom was not passive. She didn't roll over. But she avoided stupid fights. She didn't take the bait. You know, she had a way of avoiding provocation and just walking away. This was very useful to Sandra O'Connor in dealing with men. Now, sometimes... She did have to stand up to him. There's a, a great scene in the Arizona legislature. She's a majority leader. 
the House Appropriations Committee chairman, is a drunk. And she calls him on it. And he says, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose. And she said to him, if you were a man, you could. <laughs> so there were, she picked her shots. There were times when she did. But at other times, she walked away from the dumb fight. And we'll be back. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore. Because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back now with our uh, biographers, uh, Lynn Olson, Susan Page, and Evan Thomas. Uh, Evan, I want to get back to you about how women in those days were dealing with men. And you talked about uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and what she had learned from her mother. But there was one very important issue, and that was abortion, where the way she handled it with Scalia had an impact and, and turned around that issue. Scalia was condescending to her. Big mistake. Uh, Scalia thought he had five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, and it looked like he did. But Scalia could be, could be a condescending person, and he was condescending to Tony Kennedy, uh, who he thought was going to be the fifth vote. She was respectful to Justice Kennedy, and at the end of the day, she formed this little coalition and surprised Scalia and by being modest and respectful and shrewd. She was able to winkle a vote away to, to her side and preserve abortion rights in the Casey case in 1992. That was, a, that was a very subtle moment of human intelligence. Did any of these women consider themselves uh, feminists? Susan. Well, I, I actually talked to Barbara Bush about that at, at some length because it seemed to me she walked the walk of a feminist. She was strong-minded. She was forceful. She she didn't hesitate to speak up whether you wanted to hear from her or not sometimes. Uh, but she refused to call herself a feminist. And I think that she felt that the women's movement had been disrespectful, uh, at least at, in, in the early days, to women like her who had chosen to stay home and raise her their family uh, rather than pursue professional careers. She was mocked uh, its points uh, during her life. And there was a famous case, the Wellesley College commencement, where she was going to give the commencement address, which she did. But some of the graduating students had a petition saying she was an appropriate role model for them. Uh, no, she didn't, definitely did not uh, consider herself a feminist as we regard it now, because feminism wasn't even a blip on the radar screen in France back then. She was an extremely strong woman. She prided herself on gathering women like her into the network. But her main goal was to free France from the Germans. It wasn't to further a woman's cause. Justice O'Connor was sort of a bridge. I mean, she had to be careful in Arizona politics not to come across as a woman's liver. So she and she was careful about that and smart. But she did care about women's rights. Of course she did. How did these three remarkable women 
deal with their own vulnerabilities. Can't, you can't imagine, or I can't imagine, what it's like to know every day that you could be arrested and executed. I mean, that, that every day you were risking your life. And not only was she risking her own life, she was risking the lives of thousands of agents. And, and she felt that responsibility tremendously. So she was very, very aware of her vulnerabilities. Susan, you, you wrote at one point that uh, Barbara Bush became so upset that she contemplated suicide. That's right. 1976, uh, she, she had an empty nest at home. Her husband had taken a job heading the CIA, a job she had encouraged him not to take, by the way. Uh, she found herself falling into darkness. Uh, she told me that she would be driving her car and have an urge to plow into a tree or to, to steer into the path of an oncoming car, and she'd have to pull off the side of the road and stop and wait for the impulse to go away. Uh, she told me... Uh, that she wasn't sure how she came out of this uh, period of darkness after about six months. But one thing she did was she began to volunteer at a hospice. And there's maybe some lesson there that if you hit a rough patch, find somebody who's hit a rougher patch and help them, and it will help you. How did these three women change in your own minds as you, the more you got into this research? Well, she, to me, became more lovable. I said earlier she could be a little scary journalist. She was suspicious around journalists, and, you know, rightly so. Uh, I found her to be a formidable and a little cold. But as I got to know her and I got to know her family, I realized I was wrong about that. Uh, she was, she, she wasn't, you know, she was a good politician. She could work a crowd. But there was a part of her that she was never going to reveal. I think this is a key, actually, to her success. I admired Barbara Bush. I thought she was formidable and consequential. I thought her story hadn't been told. But one thing I found in, in writing this book is has how much fun she was. Interviewing her was uh, a treat. And her telling, her telling stories about her relationship with Nancy Reagan, for instance, it was as though she was living, reliving their friction uh, from yesterday. It was they that, didn't like They did not like each other. Then. I think pain and grief... Uh, really uh, stayed with Marie Madeline for the rest of her life. She, after the war, um, she survived, as did uh, a number of her of her top people. They went off. They were men. They went off and and formed an airline and they did all these great things. She basically devoted the rest of her life to the agents who survived, and especially to the wives and children of those who didn't. Um, she raised money for them until the day she died to make sure that they could continue living. Um, you know, in a, in a substantive way. Uh, France was not willing to give them much money, and, and she did her best uh, to do what, everything she could for them. Wow. Well, I'm sorry we have to leave it there. Thank you all for a, a great discussion, and we'll be right back. Robert Cairo, the legendary biographer of Lyndon Baines Johnson, has just released a book on an unlikely subject himself. That seemed reason enough to pay him a call. So um, this is where the magic happens. You have the only decorations in Robert Cairo's New York City office are the outlines of his next book tacked on the walls and the manual typewriter on which he is hammering it out. So why do you do that? Why did you never go to computers? Uh, to slow myself down. So I write my first drafts over and over in longhand because that's the slowest way of committing your thoughts to paper. No one can accuse 83-year-old Robert Cairo of rushing his work. He's devoted his life to investigating and reporting on just two figures. 
Robert Moses, the urban planner who never held elected office, but whose roads, bridges, and buildings and parks helped shape New York City more than any mayor or governor in the 20th century. And Lyndon Johnson, who held every high office in Washington, including President of the United States. After more than 40 years and four books about Johnson, he's trying to complete the fifth and final installment. He says they are not biographies, but studies in power. You talk about power, and we all know the old thing, power corrupts and all that. But you make a point of saying that it also causes things to happen. What I think power always does, Bob, is reveal. When you are climbing, trying to get power, often you have to conceal what you really intend to do or how you're doing it. Because if people saw that, they might disagree with your aims or not be afraid of the way you're doing it and not want to give you more power. Johnson always knew just how far that power would go. His first rule was never tell a man to go to hell unless you can make him. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that was a great rule, yes. <laughs> I've always thought that uh, Johnson not only had a, a great ability to explain to people why it was in their interest to be on his side, right. but also why it was not in their interest to be against him. <laughs> you know, John Connolly once said to me, Lyndon Johnson never forgot and he never forgave, and uh, you didn't want to be on the wrong side of him. Johnson was never afraid to go against conventional wisdom. You know, when Johnson becomes president, Kennedy is assassinated. Four days later, he has to give this speech to a joint session of Congress. And he, so he's not even in the Oval Office yet. Four of his speechwriters are gathered around his kitchen table writing the speech. So sometime late in the evening, wearing a bathrobe, Lyndon Johnson comes down and says, how are you doing? They say, we only know one thing. Don't make a priority of civil rights. Don't emphasize civil rights. If you do that, you're going to get the Southerners who control Congress angry, and they're going to stop your whole legislative program like they did with Kennedy. So it's a noble cause, but it's a lost cause. Don't take it up. Johnson says to them, well, what the hell's the presidency for then? And in his speech, of course, he says, our first priority is civil rights. And he never gave up on that cause. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause, too, because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Johnson went on to score one legislative victory after another, but he also wielded his power to expand the war in Vietnam, and it tore the country apart. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many people have you killed today? The criticism became so intense in 1968, Johnson decided not to seek re-election, hoping to spend full time on ending the war. 
But the war would go on for another seven years, eventually taking the lives of 58,000 Americans and 3 million Vietnamese. Cairo refuses to compare Johnson to the current president, but when the airwaves are filled with talk like this... No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. To Robert Cairo, it's just old news. I think Lyndon Johnson felt the, the very same way, I can tell you that. He said, no president ever endured what I had to endure, yeah. Has any president that you know about ever felt, while he was in office, that he was getting a good or fair press? <laughs> not, not that I know about. <laughs> in his latest book, Working, Cairo writes at length for the first time about himself, even sharing some of his best advice, shut up and let the other guy talk. I have to keep reminding myself because I talk too much to shut up. So the way I do it is to write SU in my notebooks. If you looked in through my notebooks, you'd see a hell of a lot of SUs. <laughs> the one place Cairo is never silent is on the page, and he says the end is in sight for his final book on LBJ. Well, this, as a matter of fact, is what I've written so far. This is the manuscript of the last volume, as far, really? as, as, far as I've gotten. Yeah, the last page is 392. Well, let me ask you this. If you had known these books were going to take this long, would you have embarked on this project, these projects? Pr- probably not. I had no idea. And I had no idea the Johnson books were going to take. You just keep coming across things that seem to you to be worth telling people, seem to me, to be worth telling people about. Well, I think we're glad you did. Thank you. Like so many of you, I am sure, I sat before my television all day Monday as I watched in profound sadness the burning of Notre Dame. I could not turn away. It was even more compelling to those in Paris. The Washington Post's James McCauley reported that when police ordered spectators to move back from the fire, they could not bring themselves to turn away and instead walked backward. Seeing it go up in flames reminded us of the fragility of all things, that nothing is forever, even people and things we didn't know we would miss until they were gone. Maybe it was more than that. Because it had been there so long, Notre Dame had become a symbol of the evolving continuity of Western culture, a reminder of how we became who we are, a symbol of the great truth that runs not only through Christianity, but all great religious traditions, that love is stronger than hate. Then in our sadness, within 24 hours, we realized that the bell towers of Notre Dame still stood tall, and millions of people had pledged to rebuild it just the way it was. And so it was that Notre Dame reassured us once more that for all the chaos, good people had come together to demonstrate again the power of love and to help us understand who we are. For Face the Nation, this is Bob Schieffer in Washington. Margaret will be back next Sunday. I want to thank you for inviting me into your homes once more. Moderating Face the Nation was never a job to me. It was a privilege. 
Today's guests were Maryland Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings, Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee, and New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Haker. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.